episode 23, The Truth About Nullification. Before we get started, please consider sharing the show with your friends. If you are having a discussion about gun control, the recent election, birthright citizenship, Thanksgiving, Jesus Christ, or what to do about the federal government's ever-expanding role in our lives, please share this specific episode. Also, if you are listening on Apple Podcast app, please take a second and scroll down on the TruthQuest page and give the podcast a five-star rating. It helps with, with visibility inside of iTunes. Also, please consider supporting the show financially. All donations will be used to expand the reach of the show. See the show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for the link to the support page. As always, a quick reminder that the easiest way to stay up to date on the podcast is to subscribe to it on iTunes or Google Play Music. It's also available on Stitcher, Spotify, or Podbean. Finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. So let's get started. For many of you, the topic we are going to discuss today would be brand new. Hell, I majored in poli-sci as an undergrad and the topic never came up. For some of you, the idea will seem ridiculous. For others, it will be eye-opening and possibly even provide you with a glimmer of hope that something can be done to reel in the out-of-control federal government. So what is nullification? Well, the, defin- the dictionary definition of nullification is an act or instance of nullifying, which is to render or declare something legally void or inoperative. You may have heard of jury nullification. That's when a jury essentially ignores the law as written. State nullification is when a state essentially ignores or refuses to comply with a federal law that they deem unconstitutional. A simple example of nullification is driving. Drivers nullify the speed limit laws millions of times a day because they refuse to drive as slow as the government mandates. They simply ignore the law. The term nullification entered the American political lexicon in Thomas Jefferson and James Madison's Kentucky and Virginia Resolutions of 1798, which were written in response to the Alien and Sedition Acts. With those documents, the principle of nullification was solidified. It maintains that, number one, the federal government was was created by the states who maintained their sovereignty. Number two, these sovereign states granted a few enumerated powers to this newly created federal government. Number three, all other powers remained with the states. And number four, if the federal government oversteps its bounds by passing unconstitutional laws or implementing unconstitutional regulations, the states are obligated to intervene in order to protect their people. In other words, the states have veto power over perceived unconstitutional acts by the feds. By definition, any federal law that violates the Constitution is null and void. It has no effect, is to be ignored, and states are obligated not to enforce or submit to it. After all, the states created the federal government. The federal government is supposed to be subordinate to the states, not the other way around as we see in modern-day America. The federal government is an agent of the states, with few defined enumerated powers granted to it. The majority of the powers stay with the states. In case there is any confusion as to the powers delegated to the federal government, the Tenth Amendment makes it pretty clear. It reads, the powers not delegated to the United States, the federal government, by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. In 1833, Judge Abel Upshur, a lawyer and judge from Virginia, who also served as Secretary of the Navy and Secretary of State for President John Tyler, 
summarized the concept of nullification like this. He said, number one, the Constitution of the United States is a compact between the states. As such, the government established by that compact possesses no power whatever except what the plain sense and intention of that compact gives to it. Number three, that every act done by that government, not plainly within the limits of its powers, is void. Number four, that each state has a right to say whether an act done by that government is plainly within the limits of its power or not. And finally, number five, the states are not bound to submit to, but may resist any act of that government, which it shall so decide to be beyond the limits of its powers. He also said, a law beyond the Constitution is no law at all, and there is no right anywhere to enforce it. Put another way, the federal government was created by the states by way of a contract, that's the Constitution. That contract enumerated a few undefined powers to the federal government. The states symbolically signed this contract through their ratification conventions. Why would the states allow the federal government, something they created, the ability to police itself? It would be like parents allowing their children to make their own rules. Instead, the Constitution allows what I will call the Dr. Huxtable approach to dealing with children, or in this case, the federal government. How many of you remember the scene from The Cosby Show where Dr. Huxtable, played by Bill Cosby, was addressing his son, Theo, played by Malcolm Jamal Warner. Cosby says something like, Boy, I brought you into this world and I'll take you out. That is how the relationship between the states and the federal government is designed to work. If the child, the federal government, steps out of the line, the parents, the states, are obligated to set their kids straight. In Federalist 78, Alexander Hamilton wrote, quote, No legislative act, therefore contrary to the Constitution, can be valid. To deny this would be to affirm that the deputy is greater than his principal, that the servant is above his master, that the representatives of the people are superior to the people themselves. So in this case, the deputy and the servant is the federal government. As Tom Woods put in his book Nullification, see the show notes page for a link to that book. In a nutshell, he said, quote, The essential statement of the principles behind nullification are the state's had not agreed to a system in which they would submit without protest to whatever the federal government should do. To the contrary, the states established a federal government with limited powers and reserved for themselves all powers they did not delegate to their government. What if your local city council passed an ordinance decreeing that your house is no longer yours? They simply stripped you of your property rights. That ordinance is not legal by any standard. Therefore, it is null and void. You are under no obligation to comply and to give up your property. As a matter of fact, you're obligated to oppose such an ordinance. Granted, they could send in the sheriff and remove you, but that doesn't make it legal. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it moral. Here's another example. In episode number 16, The Truth About the Supreme Court, I used the analogy of referees in a football game changing the rules on the fly as a way to demonstrate how the Supreme Court skirts the original intent of the Constitution and often legislates from the bench. It's no different here with this discussion about nullification. Pardon my French, but you can't make shit up as you go along when there's a binding contract, the Constitution, or in the case of the football analogy, a rule book. If a referee decides to start throwing penalty flags for roughing the passer when the defensive player simply puts his hands on the quarterback, this new rule is null and void. It doesn't even exist except in the head of the referee. The league or the replay officials would overrule the referee on the field 
just like the states overrule the federal government when they pass unconstitutional laws or behave in a manner contrary to the Constitution. In order to consider this topic in an intellectually honest manner, you must ask the question, why would the federal government be the exclusive judge of what is constitutional? That doesn't even make logical sense. The states may as well not even exist. We're just one big country rather than a collection of 50 states. Think about it. The Constitution is worthless if the federal government gets to make up its own rules and there is no resistance from the states. At the end of the day, the individual states chose to join the federal union and created these lowercase United States. If the federal government starts to behave tyrannically, the states have an obligation to nullify the law. Did you know, in 1790, there was one congressman for every 30,000 people. The size of the House of Representatives was capped in 1920 at 435 members. Now the ratio of people to congressmen is over 700,000 to 1. If we were to using the old ratio, there would be over 10,000 members of the House. Anyone with an ounce of intellectual honesty knows that our so-called representatives in D.C. pays us very little attention. The re-election rate of incumbents is somewhere in the neighborhood of 90%, so why would they listen, especially with a constituency of over 700,000 people? So the question remains, why in the world would we grant the feds more power than is absolutely necessary? The most common yet incorrect argument against the doctrine of nullification usually relies on the Supreme Court opinions that have expanded the power of the federal government and the incorrect application and interpretation of the Supremacy Clause of the Constitution. I cover the shortcomings and fallacies of the Supreme Court in detail in Episode 16, The Truth About the Supreme Court, so I will be brief here. Number one, judges are human beings, not gods. You've heard the expression to err is human? Well, judges err all the time. Number two, the judiciary is part of the federal government. So how can they be the final arbiter of constitutional disputes between the states and the feds? The Supreme Court might be an impartial arbiter in a dispute among two or more states, but not between the federal government, of which it is a part of, and the states. Are skeptics really going to argue that it is not problematic that the umpire or arbiter is employed by the defendant? I want you to digest that idea before moving on. And listen to episode 16 for more on the Supreme Court. And when it comes to the supremacy clause of the Constitution, it is often cited as granting the federal government jurisdiction over virtually everything. The supremacy clause states, quote, the Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuant thereof, shall be the supreme law of the land, end quote. We are led to believe that this clause means federal law trumps state law. Over and over again, you hear this on mainstream news outlets. For confirmation of this, just do a quick online search and see what articles pop up first. Given what we have just discussed, how the federal government was created by the states and is supposed to be subservient to them, does it make any logical sense that the founders wrote such an asinine clause in the Constitution? Ask yourself this. Would any of the states that ratify the Constitution have done so with the knowledge that they were giving up their sovereignty? The answer is a resounding no. It would be like giving your children full reign over your household. Back to the actual clause. Quote, the Constitution and the laws of the United States shall be made in pursuance thereof. Did you catch the fact that the word thereof refers to the Constitution? That means all laws of the United States 
made in accordance with the Constitution are the supreme law of the land. The reverse is also true. All unconstitutional laws of the United States are not the supreme law of the land because they are not made in accordance with the Constitution. So your next question is likely, who decides if a law is made in pursuance of the Constitution? The answer is the states where the people reside, of course. Certainly one cannot argue in good faith that the federal government has a monopoly on constitutional interpretation. There are other arbiters as well. Obviously the legislative branch has an opinion since they presumably passed the law in question to begin with. The president has an opinion since he can veto a bill if he thinks it's unconstitutional. The judiciary can offer an opinion if a lawsuit regarding one of these null and void laws makes it to their docket. But at the heart of the issue are the states where the people reside. They individually decide. Yes, that may lead to chaos, but that's federalism for you. That's the system the Founding Fathers designed for us. They wanted the 13 colonies, or now the 50 states, to serve as a restraint against any tyrannical tendencies of the newly created federal government. Clearly, that desire has failed, but the mechanism to rectify the situation is still available in the form of nullification. I want to briefly discuss an important concept when it comes to nullification. It's called the anti-commandeering doctrine. For those of you who are skeptical about the idea of nullification and you hold the Supreme Court in high regard claiming that they should have the final say on everything constitutional, this next minute or two is going to be a little bit uncomfortable. The anti-commandeering doctrine dates back to Supreme Court opinions as far back as 1842. The court has repeatedly ruled that the federal government cannot force states to use their own personnel or resources to help them carry out or implement their own acts, laws, or regulatory programs. This reinforces one of the most potent methods of opposition to federal overreach, that is, the state's refusal to participate. The most recent example is the states that refuse to operate Obamacare exchanges in compliance with the Affordable Care Act. Those states have essentially told the Democrats in Congress who passed the bill, you made the mess, you clean it up. You can't force us to incur the expenses to and utilize state resources or personnel to implement the law because it's not made in pursuance of the Constitution. The dirty little secret is the feds do not have the manpower to, to enforce all of their laws and regulations. They rely on state resources, local sheriff departments, state police, state insurance departments, state health departments, etc. to do their dirty work. States and even locales can pass laws or ordinances that make it illegal to help federal officials unless certain criteria are met. The feds can huff and puff all they want, but the states do not have to play along. Remember, the federal government is like a kid to the states. Parents don't listen to their kids in matters of utmost importance. Now that you know conceptually what nullification is, I want to walk you through some real-life examples of it. It all started before the American Revolution with the Stamp Act in 1765. This act taxed all kinds of commercial and legal documents and transactions. Virtually any transaction involving paper required a treasury stamp. The Virginia legislature passed the Virginia Resolves, calling for widespread disobedience. This was just another nail in the coffin of the no taxation without representation argument that we all learned about in school. The Alien and Sedition Acts was next. These acts, which were passed to quell free speech against the John Adams administration, was the event that prompted Madison and Jefferson to write the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions of 1798, like I mentioned earlier. How ironic that the second president of the United States 
one of the founding fathers, was already overstepping his constitutional bounds so soon in the country's history. Proof that power can corrupt even the most unlikely among us. Another incident that spurred nullification was Thomas Jefferson's embargo in 1807 preventing American merchant ships from traveling to foreign ports. Because of the devastating impact on New England's economy, the northern states ignored the embargo, often smuggling items through Canada. Opponents of the embargo argued that it was unconstitutional. So the states did what they were obligated to do. They opposed the perceived unconstitutional embargo. For example, the New York governor refused to allow state officials to help federal tax collectors. So not only do we have another founding father sitting at the head of the federal government and implementing what is considered an unconstitutional act, but this is Jefferson for crying out loud. This is the guy who first articulated the concept of nullification. As they say on ESPN, come on, man. In the late 1820s, early 1830s, South Carolina resisted tariffs put in place under President Andrew Jackson's leadership. Jackson went so far as to get a bill passed authorizing the use of force against South Carolina if they did not collect the tariff. Yikes. In the 1860s, northern states refused to cooperate with the federal fugitive slave laws, which essentially denied escaped slaves any due process. The law, which the Supreme Court found constitutional, required state and local governments to return captured slaves to their home state. So here we have an example similar to Obamacare, where a federal law is passed and the Supreme Court's opinion blesses it as constitutional, yet what did many states and local governments do? They ignored the law because it was, in their estimation, unconstitutional. It was null and void. It doesn't matter what Congress, the President, or the Supreme Court says. It was null and void. In this instance, the states even went so far as passing laws that forbade state and local officials from participating in the capture and returning of slaves under penalty of jail or loss of their job. What about prohibition? The 18th Amendment was passed, by, but the federal government had no enforcement mechanism without the use of state and local resources. You think the feds had enough resources to raid every illegal speakeasy or moonshine still? What about Rosa Parks? She simply ignored an unconstitutional law requiring blacks to sit in the back of the bus. The law was null and void. It did not exist. What about marijuana? It's a federal crime to grow and or sell it, yet, as, this, as of this recording, there are some 20 states that have legalized it in some form or fashion. How is that possible? A federal law trumps state law, as many ill-informed interpreters of the Supremacy Clause claim. Just like with prohibition, the federal government does not have the resources to raid every marijuana dispensary or backyard garden. They are largely impotent to enforce their own law. Come to think of it, why is this a federal law to begin with? Where in the Constitution does it grant the federal government the power to restrict the growing and smoking of a plant? Do you remember when the feds wanted to create a national ID back in 2005? Multiple states passed laws blocking its implementation. Where in the Constitution does it grant the federal government the power to require a national ID? As mentioned previously, Obamacare provides another example of nullification. Since the Republicans in Congress refused to defund it, the job was left to the states to repeal or ignore this monstrosity. If you cling to the belief that Obamacare is constitutional, please listen to episodes 14 and 16, The Truth About Obamacare and The Truth About the Supreme Court. Message me on, on the podcast Facebook page with your thoughts. Where in the Constitution does it grant the federal government the power 
to get involved in healthcare in general and required citizens to purchase a product specifically. What about federal gun control measures? Local municipalities are passing ordinances and creating gun sanctuaries, which end enforcement of both state and federal gun control. The Second Amendment is pretty clear. Listen to episode 18 for more on that issue. Speaking of sanctuaries, what do you think of sanctuary cities and sanctuary states when it comes to illegal immigration? That's a form of nullification. So all you liberals and progressives that have made it this far in the episode and have been poo-pooing the concept the whole way through, what do you have to say now? On a side note, this is a great example why I started this podcast, to seek the truth. In this instance, you may be a liberal-leaning person who tends to believe there's nothing really to worry about about the ever-enlarging, ever-encroaching federal government. You trust government more than you trust 330 million people to make their own decisions. That's fine. But you cannot cherry-pick when you play the Constitution card. You cannot be intellectually honest by decrying sanctuary cities for guns and celebrate sanctuary cities for illegal immigrants. Both of them are being used for the same reason, to nullify perceived unconstitutional federal actions. What about warrantless surveillance? The Constitution is pretty clear on unreasonable search and seizures, yet the feds ignore it. States are passing laws that strengthen individual privacy protections and setting the stage to undermine the federal surveillance state. There's been even been discussions about denying the NSA's huge server farm facility in Utah with local water used to cool their servers. Efforts to create a national license plate tracking system have been thwarted over the years as states pass laws that restrict the collection and sharing of such data with the feds. What about sound money? Here again, the Constitution is clear, yet the feds ignore it. According to Article 1, Section 10, only gold and silver are to be used as tender of payments of debts. So rather than having gold-backed currency, known as the gold standard, Richard Nixon took the nation off that standard, putting our national debt on a kamikaze mission towards bankruptcy. The other negative impact of this decision is the nation is stuck with what is known as fiat currency, meaning the dollar bills with which we transact are simply pieces of paper with no value, other than the fact that that currently other people will take it as payment for goods and services. But at the end of the day, it's only a piece of paper. It's not backed by gold sitting in a vault somewhere. How many of you have ever seen United States currency known as gold certificates? They look just like dollar bills of today, except they were often printed with different color ink. Essentially, each certificate denoted that the holder held title to a corresponding amount of gold. In theory, you could take a $5 bill to your local bank and redeem it for $5 worth of gold or silver. This is sadly an utterly foreign concept today. So what does this have to do with nullification? Without a gold standard, we are printing money, racking up national debt, and creating inflation. Therefore, some states have formally recognized gold and silver coins as legal tender and or eliminated sales tax and capital gains on the sale of precious metals. A few states have opened precious metals repositories where you can have your physical gold stored. You can even have a debit card issued to you with the value of your vaulted gold or silver loaded right on the card. It's a beautiful way to nullify the corrupt and self-serving Federal Reserve System that is bankrupting the country. What about asset forfeiture? As we've already established, the Constitution is pretty clear on unreasonable search and seizures and due process, yet this practice whereby local law enforcement profits from the confiscation of alleged criminal's property occurs all too often. The key word in the previous sentence was alleged. Here's how it works. Local law enforcement makes an arrest, usually drug-related. If they hand the case off to the feds, rather than prosecuting in their own jurisdiction, 
they can sit back and reap the rewards of up to 80% of the proceeds of the sale of the confiscated property. So the local sheriff or state police are perversely incented to go along with this obvious miscarriage of justice and clear violation of one's due process rights. In America, you can have your stuff confiscated without being convicted. Really? Well, in comes nullification efforts at the state level prohibiting and or limiting the state from taking a person's property without a criminal conviction. Have you ever read the part of the Constitution that grants the federal government the power to restrict what we consume? Would you believe that raw milk is an issue requiring nullification? Yep. The FDA doesn't want us making our own decisions about what we consume, and raw milk is near the top of their list. They've even gone so far as to raid Amish farms over the last few years to make their point clear. They're tough. The states are passing laws legalizing the consumption of raw milk. Oh, the horror that the bureaucrats at the FDA must be experiencing at the thought of people consuming unpasteurized milk. Oh, the humanity. Where in the Constitution does it grant the federal government the power to restrict what drugs and medical treatments we, the people, consume or use? While we're on the topic of the FDA, you are likely aware of the fact that federal law prohibits the use of most experimental drugs until they get the official approval of the FDA after spending years evaluating the treatment's effectiveness and requiring the spending of billions of dollars on research and development in the process. Well, these restrictions are perceived to be unconstitutional by many states. Many, in turn, have passed what is known as right-to-try laws, which help bypass the FDA's restriction, giving their citizens access to experimental drugs. And isn't that what a good and just government should do? Well, we've covered a lot in this episode. If you take one thing away, I hope it is that despite the current political environment, the federal government is not supreme. They do not get to make the rules and then interpret the constitutionality of those rules. The states created the federal government and granted them a few and defined powers. All others were left to the states. Therefore, the states have a constitutionally mandated obligation to serve as a check and balance against the federal government. While mainstream analysis and mainstream historical perspectives are all too quick to espouse the brilliance of the founders when it comes to supposed checks and balances built into the federal government via the three branches of government, the purpose that the states serve in this regard is almost always ignored. Hopefully not anymore. Please join the conversation at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast.